Alex, thanks for coming back. Sure, no problem. Glad I had here. more questions for you. Sounds good. Uh, this, I, so I was I was rereading parts of Hobbes' Leviathan, mm -hmm. and he I came to the section, the chapter in which he's talking about all the things that lead to a commonwealth breaking down. Okay. So his list starts off with when the head of the commonwealth is not an absolute sovereign, mm -hmm. um, that he needs absolute power, that that power can't be divided. And, he, and he, then he goes on and he has, has several different uh, items mm -hmm. uh, that, that must be checked off or, or, or boxes that must be checked off to ensure that a commonwealth ne never dies. Mm -hmm. And one of those things, he, he goes and he says, uh, another doctrine repugnant to civil society is that whatsoever a man does against his conscience is sin. So it's, mm -hmm. he's saying right from the get-go right. that, that conscience is is unimportant. Mm -hmm. It's it's actually the, um, he goes on to can say... Be trumped. It can be well, trumped. He actually goes on to say that um, uh, though he that is subject to no civil law sinneth in all he does against his conscience, because he has no other rule to follow but his own reason, yet it is not so with him that lives in a commonwealth, because the law is the public conscience. So all of a sudden, so this this was really interesting. He says that... Um, of course, it, it all pertains on the earlier conversations mm -hmm. that, he, that he's having in this chapter, that mm -hmm. for a sovereign to truly be a sovereign, then his will must become the will of the people, that his law must become the absolute right and wrong mm -hmm. uh, of the people. It kind of takes us to this Euthyphro mm -hmm. dilemma of is, is right and wrong because it truly is right and wrong in mm -hmm. a transcendent realm, or is it just because the gods have declared it? And, mm -hmm. and Hobbes' answer is that right and wrong is yeah. only because the gods have declared it, and the gods, by the way, exactly. is the head I of the that. commonwealth. Yeah, I see that. So I wanted to, I, the reason why I wanted to talk with you about this in particular is because you had um, this this eerie statement that you just mentioned in passing when we were having a conversation the other day. <laughs> about how a conscience is the Christian invention. Mm -hmm. And so when you hear that Thomas Aquinas and Bonaventure mm -hmm. and the whole host of scholastics saying mm -hmm. that it is a great sin to to break one's conscience, mm -hmm. um, that that despite what, what might seem at an external level mm -hmm. to be uh, in like an objectively wrong uh, thing to do, um, that, that they still side on the side of the conscience. Mm -hmm. um, and you said that that was a fundamentally Christian thing as opposed to to the pagans. Mm -hmm. And so when, as, as I'm reading this in Hobbes, and as, as we are claiming that liberalism is um, a, a development back into a pagan orientation, if, uh, but, a, but an atheistic mm -hmm. um, pre-Christian orientation, I guess is a better way of putting it, um, I thought we needed to have this conversation of this exactly how a Christian, how, how a conscience is, in, is, is a particularly Christian concern. Yeah. I think that the kind of idea that you're concerned this, that there, that Hobbes seems to be completely rejecting is that the individual, right, has this sense or this judgment or this conviction that he can stand on and he can stand alone and it's right for him to stand on that ground. Right. And so I think that is a profoundly uh, Christian um, idea and origin. I think there are, if you generalize conscience to be something um, broader, mm -hmm. um, 
then I think there are sort of hints and, and shadows of that in pagan philosophy. Okay. Um, so it's not like the idea comes out of completely nowhere, but I think the development that we have in what we think of as conscience now of these, you know, a great martyr or a great hero or a great moral reformer who stands and even dies on his conscience is a good thing. That's Christian. Mm. Um, so I think we kind of have that conception. And so I think a, we, the, the main thing that I think we have a mistake that we make in our culture, not the same one that Hobbes makes, but that's one mistake is the other side is to think that whatever our conscience says is right. Just because we can have these instances where we should always stand on our conscience and not go against it, it doesn't follow that our conscience is always right because it's something that can be trained, something that can be formed, something that has to be um, worked on and developed, something that can be deformed, right? Mm. So conscience in the Christian conception, I think, has a has a twofold, um, a twofold directionality. On the one hand, it looks outward beyond itself, right? So we might say to the object of order, to reality, right, to truth. On the other hand, it looks inside like you're where the buck stops. When you have a decision, you have a moral judgment, right? And you have a conviction that ends your deliberation on something important. You stand on your conscience and your conscience alone, right? And that's right and that's good. Um, so I think that's definitely a Christian conception. Um, and that twofold direction, I think, is, is, is key. So um, what does Aristotle say about one's conscience? I mean, he definitely, I mean, so what, where I would locate the idea, Christian idea of conscience onto the pagan um, background is I think of conscience as the kind of conviction that ends deliberation. So it, to me, it relates to prudence. Okay. So, so the virtue of prudence is about deliberation, deliberating means to ends. Um, you can broaden out the conception of prudence. It can be, you know, also ends, which is important. Um, but at any rate, when Aristotle talks about prudence, I think the Christian concept goes right on top and completes what he was sort of getting at. Um, so when when I think about conscience, I think of something that's not um, irrational, but maybe pararational, mm -hmm. like something that's, mm. that deeply moves deeply inside of me that is Very not good. my direct intellectual considerations, yes. but rather something that as a, a stirring of the spirit. That's an excellent point. I, I really like that. That That's something that I think in the scholastic era, the theory of conscience developed and you have this distinction that you hear in Bonaventure, Aquinas, Scotus, lots of the other scholastics. It, it started out with actually St. Jerome um, had this, he looked on the back on the book of Ezekiel and there's this image, right, of the, of the men that come out with four faces. And he has this word that he uses to describe an aspect of them. The four faces represent for him different aspects of human, the human um, powers, like oh. the powers of the soul. Um, this is what he thinks. And one of them he calls synderesis, right? And so that gets picked up by the um, early scholastics, the pre-scholastics, and then into the scholastic era. And synderesis is this, and it, it's interpreted differently by different people, but it's something like this ineradicable sense or this ineradicable desire right that you said it pararational it's like already mm -hmm. in us we don't put it into us by training it's already there and so one interesting divide within the christian um worldview within the scholastic thought anyway is a more intellectual intellectualistic understanding of conscience and a more voluntaristic one voluntaristic not in a bad sense but more have to do with desire will so bonaventure for example looks at synderesis as a fundamental desire and motivation that conscience needs in order to act so it's more fundamental than conscious. Whereas somebody like Aquinas and later Scotus actually agrees with Aquinas on this point and actually synthesizes with um, uh, Bonaventure in a different way. But I'll get to that later if you want to. Yeah. But anyway, both both of those guys think of synderesis as giving us 
intellectual judgments or principles about universal things like do good and avoid evil, like, you know, obey superiors, like super general things like that, that have no application in particular circumstances. So you need an additional kind of judgment to get more particular principles all the way to particular circumstances. And that they call conscience. Uh, okay. So, that, so you might think of, we might call it universal conscience, what they called syndericis, right? That's what Pieper calls it. I like that. Joseph Pieper. Um, and then he calls it one that's more particular situation conscience. Okay. So we kind of, we lost that distinction, but it's still there the way we think about things. You know, we've been having um, in some of these podcasts and, and just conversations in the office about uh, making, putting the, this in terms of law. Mm -hmm. So yeah. whereas you have these, this natural law that yeah. is a reflection of the eternal law, mm -hmm. the eternal law being the mm -hmm. internal order of self-giving within, mm -hmm. within God himself. Mm -hmm. um, and then as he creates the universe, he, it, 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 is, it essentially has his fingerprint on mm -hmm. it. And so therefore there's certain uh, laws, customs, guides that, that, are, that are built into the order of creation. Mm -hmm. And then we attempt, but of course those are inarticulable things. They're right. ju they are just the orientations, the movements mm -hmm. of creation. Mm -hmm. And then we attempt to articulate mm -hmm. those movements, which is the human law. That's and right. so, b um, but of course there's different dimensions of of the human law a very basic one is just what you what mm -hmm. you called what was the general conscience mm -hmm. yeah. of, of universal general conscience syndericis it used to be called yeah. syndericis yeah. um of of uh do not do not murder but then what mm -hmm. happens when bob happens to kill kill joe right. um and what are the circumstances yeah. around it yeah. those are those are where more the particular right conscience has to come into play right, right. so i think i mean law being I mean, if you use Aquinas's famous definition as a, a dictate of practical reason, right? So in that case, even if it's not a matter of, you know, a community's laws or a lawmaker's legislation or something, individually, as we think about what to do and our deliberation ends, the virtue of prudence governs that, then when that ends with a judgment about what to do, it's in a particular here and now. And so conscience actually applies in any case like that, unless it's what you might call a morally neutral action, which... Some people think there aren't any, but at any rate, um, it's, it's broader. Conscience is broader and applies in many, many more situations and just super important ones. Like when somebody's going to be martyred or something, um, cause it's just what ends the practical deliberation. And so it does have this law like character. And to me, that's that twofold, the twofold direction I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So that to me is crucial. Like I said, part of the Christian worldview, because it connects to natural law like that, because one thing our, our practical reason, when it works rightly, just is the promulgation of the natural law, when it works right. So in other words, if our conscience is right, that is the natural law. Because it's inarticulable. Yeah. It's just the movements of God. Yeah, or, God or, in us. Yeah. We're participating in God's reason. Our reason, when it's right, participates in right reason, which is God's reason. Wow. Um, so, wow. Yeah. That's beautiful. So when you have... I mean, this this is really important on, on quite a number of, of levels, but I, I want to just kind of swoop back into that pagan conversation mm -hmm. again. So if you have this uh, kind of a beautiful dialectic in, in the Christian tradition between in the, in the two directionality of, of one's conscience, mm -hmm. um, you would then, there's kind of an implication in that in the pagan context, there's a split between uh prudential deliberation which is explicitly intellectual and the the stirrings of mm. one's soul which does that end up being superstition 
religious pagan what how how do you describe I think, that i think i think that can become extra rational you know it's not part of philosophy's purview at some point but i think if you have a sophisticated view of desire right like um so Bonaventure, for example, I work within the Franciscan tradition. So I, I think of his view and the Franciscan view that came after him is there, there are such things as um, unelicited desires, mm. meaning so Aristotle thought there were only elicited desires. There has to be an, a, an actual particular object, right, to, for the intellect, for a desire to be elicited. There are no unelicited desires. But for Bonaventure, there's an un, unelicited desire. And that's the desire for the good, for the beautiful, for God. It's already in us, right? So that's why when um, a Franciscan, a person in the Franciscan tradition looks at kind of the intro-Thomistic disputes about nature and grace, they're kind of like, wow, you guys are having a huge, intense debate here. We've never had that debate. That's interesting um, <laughs> because they just have a different view of desire, right? Um, so that whole nature-grace split does not affect a Franciscan as much. It, it, it doesn't create a huge controversy. Um, because there's these unelicited desires. And Sindericus, as Bonaventure understood it, what Scotus later called the affectio justitiae, the affection of the will or this innate tendency or pondus weight towards um, the, uh, the good itself or justice itself, that took the place of, of Bonaventure's Sindericus in Scotus. But it's the exact same notion okay. um, of this desire that's already in the will, not elicited by an object. It's already there. So one way, um, one so way. So is this just yeah. a complete black box for for Aristotle? I mean, it's kind of hard for me to even conceptualize. No, he that. didn't. He didn't have a trans transcendental perspective like that. So the do you find that in the, think, you, think think of it. Sorry to interrupt. Earlier, mm -hmm. just as the scholasticism was coming into um, fruition, right? There was the doctrine of transcendentals, that became huge for the scholastics. That was not developed by Aristotle. What about Plato? I mean, it kind of sounds no, something generally I th platonic. I think definitely it is more platonic, but mm -hmm. it wasn't developed as a theory. You know, I think he had that obviously with think of the allegory of the cave, right? The good itself, or he says crazy things like the good is beyond being and stuff like that. So he has some sort of inclination of transcendentals, but it's not developed into a theory that becomes, that becomes thematic. And then Scotus, in my view, being a Franciscan, I see him as developing that to the, to the highest peak. So for him, me metaphysics, he calls it the transcendental science. That's what metaphysics is. The study of these things, being itself, goodness, truth, unity, and beauty as well. Um, and then he has other transcendentals that he works into his thing. But the point is, is we have this connection to God, right? The source of all these transcendentals, right? Through the, you know, the doctrine of simplicity. God just is those things. Um, so we have this already inbuilt connection to God. And our mind is built so that we can find our way back to God so that we can have salvation so that we can be made as it were into little gods you, you know this makes perfect sense how the christian tradition was able to articulate all these mm -hmm. things to actually put all the, the all of these ideas in their proper place mm -hmm. but what did so then the, the kind of the general stirrings the kind of the quakes of the soul in a particular situation that one finds themselves uncomfortable in mm. what what of those what did what did the pagans make make of those i mean i can definitely say that for socrates we have a almost an image of the conscience some people think of his description of the voice that he hears or the daimon yes right that he does whatever it says it never tells him what to do it only tells him to stop doing something that he's about to do right and then he always stops whenever it says because he basically learned that that's always right 
So I think we do have an image of conscience, but he doesn't develop that into a theory. That's us looking back and saying, oh, that's like conscience, you know? Um, so I think there are things in there. And Socrates himself is this, uh, you know, interesting character that appears in Plato's dialogues. We don't know the exact difference between the character and the historical one, but that doesn't really matter because we're studying him in Plato. Um, but, but as Plato has this character, he reflects a lot on these myths. Myths are really important in dialogues. So to me, that's sort of, getting into something that you called it uh, earlier, um, something that's para-rational. So there's something that reason is getting to that it can't quite, it knows it's there, but it can't articulate it, it can't get into it directly. Well, that's exactly what faith is supposed to, uh, what reason's supposed to do, get you to the door of faith, something that gets you beyond. Reason wants that something else. So I think in those myths, in that kind of reflection of conscience, we get reason wanting, right, to be married to faith. It wants that. Um, and so I see that in the pagans. So the pagans, obviously, many of the early Christians thought, wow, how do these guys know so much? Should God somehow give them some special information too? I mean, they were really close, right? But obviously, you know, you want to be perfect as he is perfect. So close doesn't cut it. But it's, but it's cool. It's cool to reflect back on and see God's plan in history to, to, to reveal himself, right, in this pagan culture that had so many of these clues pointing us forward. Right. That's just, you know, so... It's very interesting that to see this. It's it's. I always find it um, almost a little bit jaw dropping when things have been so well developed in the Christian tradition and then so well permeated mm -hmm. throughout the culture that when you look back mm -hmm. pre pre Christ mm -hmm. and in outside of Israel in ancient Israel, it's just not there. Right. I mean, it's just it's always kind of kind of surprising. But but the fact that there's some. I mean, all, the obvious uh, premises or inclinations that from which they were derived, right. or, you know, still in existence, still, still noticeable. Um, which one of uh, Socrates' dialogues comes to mind when you talk about the daimon? When I think about it, I think about in, in the Apology, when he's describing right. his, his very life, right, what he does and why he does what he does, right? And I mean, could you go to the Crito as well when he's, you know, <laughs> there at his death death's door, right, and his friends are trying to get him to escape, right? Um, he says some really interesting stuff there that I think I would disagree with, but I think he's taken a, taken a shadowy suggestion of reason too far, where that's where he makes the laws of the state sort of, he personifies those, if you remember that part. Mm -hmm. He personifies those and he, they speak, and it sounds like what you just read from Hobbes. Like those have to absolutely be obeyed because that's like God's voice, right? So because he doesn't have this personal God that, that has these, um, that, that loves us and so gives us a law, right? Um, that's that's all he can say. And so I think Hobbes, what Hobbes is doing there is a complete, you know, retrogression, a giving up, a post-Christian moment, you might say, right there in Hobbes. Um, so is there really no, I mean, this is exactly where we want the, the conversation to come back to is that how much the political landscape is influenced by the theological convictions. Right. Um, can you can you say a little bit more about the, the personal uh, or I guess the, the personal lists uh, nature of, of these gods. I mean, of course, when you think of the Apology, you also think about Euthyphro, which of course I mentioned right. in, in a bit prior. Um, are those supposed to be held in tandem or what can you what can you deduce from one about the other when it, when it pertains to how the, the divine, the vision of the divine reflects on the, the, the vision of the state? Yeah. 
So, I mean, first thing I think of on that question, when I think of sort of Greek theology and where it is inadequate and, and wrong, um, again, I'm talking natural theology. I'm not talking they're wrong because they don't know Christian scripture, right? Um, but they're wrong just in their natural theology. So for Aristotle, he explicitly says in Eudemian Ethics that God issues no commands and that God is our last end like, and he compares it to this. He says, God is our last end like health is the last end of a doctor. Like he aims for health in all of his patients. So it's like kind of a goal that we set, like this sort of abstract goal. So God is our end in that way. So we should make sure that all of our actions are ordered to that end. So C is right there, but then God doesn't issue any commands. So God is like a cosmic supercomputer up there that's just everlastingly keeping an everlasting universe in being, right? But he doesn't create, he doesn't providentially um, ordain any particular order, right? He's sort of just a, the computer program, right? This mind thinking itself that's up there. So there's no really will in God, no commands, no will, no personal connection at all. So I wouldn't even say Aristotle's God is, a, is personal at all, right? Right. Perhaps. Plato's, yeah, Plato's is more ambiguous it's more difficult to tell but in in timaeus mm -hmm. if you look at timaeus there's there's one line in there where he he refers to god or a character refers to god as as a father so like oh wow there's like a personal moment there right but then if you read that whole image of god who is a kind of person or force behind right this complicated set of um creators and sub creators that or like create the world the way it is or make the world the way it is out of some pre-existing matter. Who knows? It gets all murky. But the point is it's it's less bad, I think. Less bad, but a lot more murky mm -hmm. than Aristotle. But still, you don't get a person a direct personal God. Right. It's more like he he has fathered not yes. that, it, that he is a exactly. father or a dad yeah. or something yeah. like that. Yes. Yeah. But obviously the <laughs> during the early scholastic period and before that the Christians, when they went to the library and they went to the Plato section, there was only one book there, right? The Timaeus. They absolutely loved it. They ate, absolutely ate it up and like, wow, how did Plato know? all this? this is almost like our creation account. Of course, they weren't thinking about the really weird elements about, you know, the nature of uh, androgynous human nature that gets split apart and all this weird stuff that we would never agree with as Christians. Um, right. But they see a basic story of God making and being involved, right, with creation connected, unlike Aristotle's sort of intellect thinking itself right sort of thing absolutely deistic kind of an impersonal deistic conception right but you wanted to connect that to the state so maybe you could re-ask your question one more time well and, i mean yeah. you you originally pointed it out that um where the 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 daimon that that makes socrates stop mm -hmm. um is you know, where I guess it even comes to a place of conflict mm -hmm. when, with the declarations of the state. For Socrates, on the one hand, you have a god mm -hmm. to whom uh, things tend. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, he's similar to, to Aristotle right. in, 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 end. That, yeah, yeah. in that regard. Um, and further, still like Aristotle, mm -hmm. God does not give any commands. Mm -hmm. That's on the one side. Mm -hmm. You have a silent deity. Mm -hmm. And then on the other, you have an articulate commanding government structure. Mm -hmm. You also have at this time, and it's, it's just right around this period um, where you find a transition from uh, the obsession with Greek mythos mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. uh, and to, to the real deity mm -hmm. is 
is the king. Mm-hmm. Um, so of course in Athens that looks a little bit different. Right. Um, but it but it's but it holds on to this understanding that that those who lead the country are themselves the sons of God, those who are connected in mm-hmm. in, in this sense mm-hmm. his mouthpiece. Yeah. Right. Um, so there's there is this kind of, there is this connection there, but um but it but it necessarily because it, it comes to a place where you have to realize that you need some direction. Yeah. And I think this trying to tie back into the, yeah. the conscience conversation is that the conscience always needs some direction and you need to have some voice, some word, a divine word mm-hmm. that is spoken. And that is either the sovereign God in the Christian tradition or the sovereign mm-hmm. state mm-hmm. in the Hobbesian Socratic mm-hmm. tradition. Mm-hmm. There's kind of an in-between. I see, I was listening to what you're saying and I thought, there's kind of an in-between position with Aristotle because in the rhetoric, um, there's a place in the rhetoric where he sort of lays out this view of law Mm -hmm. and he says there's basically universal law and particular law. And he starts talking like, I've heard that somewhere. And then you go to, you go to Thomas's treatise online. You're like, wow, that's really similar. Um, So he has this conception of the universe as law-like. Right. But again, it's not God issuing those laws, but it, but it is a universal law-like um, structure that we should make our state conform to. So he, he's not a positivist like Hobbes, where whatever the state says is law. He's still trying to conform or thinks that the state should conform its laws to this universal justice to, you might say, nature. Mm. Right. To the laws of nature, to nature's laws. So it's kind of like it's a proto-natural law position. Right. But it's not coming. It's not coming from God as a command, and it's not coming through the use of practical reason, right? We can still discover it, right, through theoretical reason, through looking at nature, studying humanity, studying all the different polices around and all the different constitutions, and being scientific about it. So we, we can then prove or show that well, our system, the Greek system, the polis, right, that whole way of thinking about things, it's better than all these other ones, right? It's the best one. It's the most reasonable. So to me, it's that's a lot better than Hobbes's position which is positivistic, where whatever the sovereign says, that is law. And there's nothing else above that to check it. See? Right. Um, that makes a lot of sense. That's a that's a really good dist- good distinction. Thanks for catching me on that. Is there then, is this then, when, when is that Aristotelian, Aristotelian perspective develops into the Christian notion that these laws are, are particularly in his, gifts from God, parts of himself, um, when you when you strip down when you when you remove God from that political vision, as it were, mm-hmm. um, does it necessarily become Hobbes? Is this like part of the reason why he's he's gone to a further extreme than Aristotle? Is I think it- that post Christianity is worse than pre Christianity, um, and I I'm I'm with many Christian thinkers who watch the crisis of civilization unfold. Right, you might say, leading up to and in the in the Reformation and the subsequent aftermath, right, and all the revolutions and all the social upheaval and all the political and philosophical and scientific changes and just radical shift of civilization. Um, so I think the post Christianity is is worse because we have many of our Christian sympathies, right? Um, we have many things that we think are really good, like love and compassion and sympathy and these things. Right. And even pity, things like this, which if you're to look deeply into that, those are not pagan virtues. 
those were Christian virtues. Now we want the capital. We want to live on that capital, mm. right? But we want to get rid of God. We want God to be um, not necessarily non-existent, but irrelevant to what we're doing. So, so post-Christianity to me is practically atheist, right. practical atheistic, practically atheistic in that um, we live as if God doesn't exist. We might personally believe in him and that's cool, but it's not going to actually inform what we think about economics, science, statecraft or anything like that. That's all stuff for us to figure out by our own, on our own. I'm remind, as, you're, as you're saying this, I'm reminded of um, Girard's I saw Satan fall like mm -hmm. lightning, mm -hmm. where he, he shows this progression of, of violence in the pre-Christian world, mm -hmm. the champion of the humble, the lowly in spirit, mm -hmm. as, as the world is converted to Christianity. And then Nietzsche pointing out, hey, this is just you know a, a bluff that, that Christianity has uh, played and won you know the hand on. And now we, we have to call it for what it is, that, that the weak cannot overpower the strong, that the strong need to be championed. And Gerard goes on to say that this, this idea was assumed and, and progressed by uh, the Nazis in particular. And then once the world saw just how disgusting and deplorable the Nazis were, mm -hmm. it shifted back and the mm -hmm. pendulum swung violently to the Christian side, but past Christianity towards the point where any lowly group mm -hmm. now needs to be bolstered and championed mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, the the lowliest the 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 most ostracized in society must become the highest mm -hmm. so at first it was an issue of race mm -hmm. um which uh is a good and healthy start but then mm -hmm. it, it progressed quickly into sexuality and mm -hmm. so now all of a sudden um the notions of heterosexuality are now um almost looked down upon you mm -hmm. could say um and certainly now the transgender you know mm -hmm. the low right. lowliest uh least smallest percentage is mm -hmm. person is now is now championed as right. well and and you know who knows what what will come out next but in the midst of this progression have you noticed anything in particular about the transformation of the conscience and maybe you were getting at it yeah, at the beginning absolutely mm -hmm. so i think on the one hand with hobbes he completely rejects the one motion. I said there were two different directions. One is the conscience roots the moral law, you might say, into us personally. It's the buck stops with you, right? You're accountable to God, you might say, to use theology. You're accountable to him for your deeds that you do, right? And so what Hobbes does gets rid of that. You're accountable to the state. That's the highest thing. Not God in you through this voice, right? Um, but I think nowadays we have a relativistic culture and in that, we completely reject the outward dimension of the, cla the classical Christian view, the one that sees this as a law that comes from God, a voice that's bigger, that's part of reality, that's not you. So we think that whatever our conscience says is right. That's relativism. That's another way to describe relativism, right? So you should always obey your conscience, not because it might be the voice of God is the only way God can speak to you, right, in your moral actions, not that, but because it's always correct. So this is really strange. I mean? So it's, it's literally yeah. the equal and opposite of Aristotle mm -hmm. or, or Socrates mm -hmm. for, for that matter, where the, the conscience is an afterthought because you have to be rational. You can't let this mm -hmm. these inclinations within mislead, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and uh, it's not a personal voice, a personal movement mm -hmm. that is trying to direct you. That's right. As the Christian tradition developed that idea. Right. And all of a sudden you're left with, only the the directionality 
but now in a directionality. Right. So I think we have, like I said, post-Christianity in this regard is worse. So you've got on the one hand, one hand, the positivists, right? The utilitarians, right? That are trying to be able to calculate in this completely objective way what is right and wrong. And that's the source, right? This sort of rationalistic source, whether it's the state like Hobbes or whether it's Mill in this you know, calculated principle of utility is completely objective. It doesn't have to do with in, internal personal feelings, emotions, or anything that you call para-rational. Nothing to do with that, okay? Um, but God's not there, completely irrelevant. Also post-Christian is we have the other extreme, which is whatever your inclination about what's right says is right for you. That's why we say, well, that's true for you, brother, and not true for me. Well, that's right for you, but not right for me, right? And we just call it a day at that. There's no way to get objective. It's utterly subjective. So we have like a totally grossly objective, totally not personal, no connection to God, right? This sort of rationalistic calculation on the one hand. On the other hand, we have a completely subjectivistic, relativistic conception. So conscience has those two aspects have been totally split apart and separated from each other. Whereas the pagan one I see as there is a kind of objective hook in reality. There's kind of like nature is or the universe is law-like, right? That kind of thing. And rationality can, can, can discover that. And also a, a corporate aspect too. There's where a corporate you, and social aspect. Where yeah. you have to almost in a sense put put aside your conscience, mm -hmm. the, 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 the internal inclinations, mm -hmm. so that the prudential articulable considerations, which, which are then like Good in, in language, in thus in language social. Yes. Yeah, and they're I think communicable. For, yes, and I think for Aristotle, the, 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 the goods that we're going for, right, when you think of what does a state organize itself to attain, right, they're not, they're not transcendent goods. Yes, we should individually worship God or at, least, or at least make sure that what we do doesn't impinge on that, right? It's kind of a minimal, kind of a libertarian theology, I guess. Um, <laughs> um, um, so, so that, I think, is, is where, where he goes there. Um, very interesting. Okay, that's very interesting. I, I do want to wrap this up, but I, yeah. I'm just going to, I'll kick myself if I don't ask you about um, this two-tiered Thomism. Yeah. And, and when you when you mentioned about the Franciscans looking yeah. over at the Thomistic tradition saying, mm -hmm. oh, that's an interesting conversation that, we, that we've right. never had. Right. Can you can you set that up and give us the, the broad highlights of that, of that notion? And do you see any, like the, well, anyways, I won't. I want to hear that first. I mean, I would again say I'm not an expert in this area, but I've thought about it some and I'm a philosopher. So I try to think about the principles. So as I see it, what what's going on in that debate is the in the debate about nature and grace is what is man's end? Right. What is his final end? Um, and so on the one hand, we we might think, well, we have a natural end. So we might think aristotelian like in this way well we have these inclinations they can be perfected when they're all perfected and our nature is perfected then we're flourishing as a human being right a species of the human nature um and so we have this natural self-contained um completable project okay that's we might say like nature has an end right and we can look at reason we can look at science we can discover what humans need we can look at cultures we can do you know good studies we can be responsible and we can find out what that is and we can pursue that. Um, on the other hand, if we're Christians and we say, well, that's not all there is to the story, right? I mean, we won't really be complete unless we're with God in the end, because isn't that why he made us? So there's this tension. Wait a minute. There's this stuff that we can kind of discover by ourselves, right? But, and that seems complete, 
because philosophy can discover this science can do it. We can find out what human flourishing is. We can find all these inclinations. We can live all the virtues, da, 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 da. Um, but that's not getting us to God necessarily. Right. I mean, we're not Pelagians, so there's gotta be something else. Right. So I think some Thomists you've got to kind of split. You almost have like, there's two different ends. There's a natural end and there's a supernatural end. Right. And then there's a question well, how do those two relate? Okay. So on one hand, you might say these, these two tiers, one tier, right, is just underneath the other. That's how it relates. It's good. Pursue it. That's great. One her. It's complete, but it's under this other tier, right? And they're separated, right? But there is an order, right? So they're trying to put them together by this tier notion, mm. right? One's on the top and one's underneath, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, you know, the old scholastic adage, grace builds on nature. So we, we need nature to, you know, operate according to nature. So that's good. Mm. Um, and so then I think other, other Thomists are not pleased with the unity created by that image. So they want to say, no, there's a, there's a supernatural, there's a, um, naturally supernatural end. Mm. And then they try to work out the metaphysics and theology to try to describe what that can be. And I think the problem that the Franciscan sees is they're working with a concept of inclination or desire, right? Fundamental, um, tendencies of a nature that require, uh, an Aristotelian analysis. So that was what I meant earlier when I said there's only elicited desires. Just trying to bring yeah. all the whole conversation together then, I mean, it really does seem that a particularly Christian notion of the conscience, mm -hmm. um, which which really is, you put it kind of cr almost crassly, God speaking to us about how to act. Absolutely. How, that's exactly what it is. How to live. That's why we should always obey it. R right. And <laughs> so, but but it, if you have this, this separation mm -hmm. between nature and grace, and they're yes. not integrated with one another, yes. then you have to go back mm -hmm. to an Aristotelian point and say, I have to shut up my conscience at, mm -hmm. at a point at any, at, or, mm -hmm. or, you know, fly the, the complete opposite way. And if you want to integrate the two or say that, that, that grace has to influence nature in some regard, you almost listen to it, um, uh, uh, w without criticism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so you mentioned something earlier. I just, that's right. But I was just going to add something on that is, so you said the conscience always has to be informed, has to be trained, et cetera. So a, a person with a good conscience, mm -hmm. right. Um, cannot be a relativist because a person which, with a good conscience always listens to what other people say is always trying to inform his conscience more. He's always trying to get more truth, more data, more reality, right. Into his mind so that he can, you might say, correspond to reality right? Live in harmony with reality, if you want to put it that way. But if you have this Christian concept, then you're not just trying to live in conformity with reality, right? You're trying to live in conformity with God, right? Your author, right? Your maker, right? The person that loves your soul and is trying to care for you and bring you back home, right? A father, right? Not just this impersonal set of laws that we can calculate by reason and looking at our inclinations, right? Some, some, I think maybe, maybe let's call them toy Thomists. Um, some toy Thomas ones that don't really study Thomas, but they love Thomism because it's like an ideology they can adopt. A Tomer. Yeah, a Tomer, you could say. <laughs> so so I think some of them often think that these laws about how to live, we can kind of just read those by looking inside of us somehow. Like we can look at our inclinations and that's, that's just it. I think there's a shortcut going on there, right? I think every decision you're making, right? If you do that with God in mind and you want to do things for God's sake, you want to do what Augustine said, which is love God and then do as you will, making sure that what you're intending is the love of God is life's true end, 
right? If that's what you're thinking every moment rather than, okay, well, here's this inclination. Okay, that's gonna perfect my nature. So this is the principle I need. And it's sort of like this weird calculation that's almost impersonal, right? So looking for a rationalistic system of rules and laws and a code of behavior rather than trying to be open right to what God is actually teaching about the facts in these circumstances now. Well, it sounds like a perfect yeah. articulation of, of or summation of, of the Aristotelian notion of, of a conscience at that yeah. point. Yeah, I think that to me, the Tomers, right, to use that notion to defend the good Thomists, to say the Tomer, on the other hand, right, I think they've adopted a kind of um, ideological form of neo-scholastic Thomism, and they have political, social um, agendas behind what they're doing with their Thomism. Oh, and interesting. So, yeah. yeah, and so I don't think it's real yeah. Thomism, but I think it's very popular. I mean, I saw a YouTube video. I popped up on my feed the other day and it said on the front page of the YouTube video, it said Aquinas equals Catholicism. <laughs> and, and in that video, the, 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 the guy that was doing the video said, perpetuated the, the old myth, right? That on, at the Council of Trent, right? On the high altar, there were scripture. There were the scriptures right there open, but right on the side of them was the Summa right? <laughs> uh, on the high altar at the Council of Trent. Where did that shows, myth come from? I think it. I, I think it's a complicated history, but I think it starts with the with the um, Eterni Patris, oh. right, the call to go back to Aquinas, yeah. that we need some Marine Corps to fight right theological liberalism. Right, We need the Marine Corps because we're losing in this battle to German higher criticism, to all these other forces. Right, so let's go back to this amazing, powerful voice. So the Pope called yes. out for us to study St. Yes. Thomas again. And, yes. And so every, and I think so scholars started doing a good job, but I think what happened is by the time you get the need to, what do I say, have a practicable Thomism, yeah. you get manuals going a certain way, uh, right? And you get a kind of manualism, you get kind of a rigidification, a calcification of these ideas, a kind of patent. So in other words, you completely divorce philosophy from theology. You're no longer reasoning anymore in a Thomistic way. You're just following these pat answers. Right. And that creates a whole other set of problems. And that gets us all the way up ultimately to what do we do with Vatican II and what, what was the need for Vatican II and the conditions that gave rise to that, that whole situation. Oh, man. Yeah. Everything's united. That's, yeah. just, that's just unbelievable. Um, this is super clarifying, Alex. I really appreciate it a lot. And just to be able to uh, ask you a, a whole set of these questions, because you know, as soon as I saw... This this passage from Hobbes and in, the, in the, the direct attack on on the conscience and then this almost a, a silence about it or or a dismissal of it in the in the in the pre-Christian classical period um, I knew that there was there was something that um, was particularly important about the conscience for a Christian political society mm -hmm. and. Um, and I think you've given it to to us in in a, in a broader spectrum yeah. here. But if you want to summarize the importance of the conscience for yeah. the good Christian kingdom to end our podcast, how would you do it? I mean, I think that what we want to do is we want to create a society, right, that makes the formation of a good conscience something that's just run of the mill. So the right upbringing requires the right f family setting, right, it requires the right relationship between father and mother, right, between the extended family. Right? And when you have that right setting, you have a moral environment. And when you have a moral environment, then your conscience is sensitized and trained and formed in the right way to have the principles of and dictates of justice. And when you have those, then you start to think about how to make choices when you get older. And you already have all the tools. You already have reason that's being in conformity right, with the natural law. And we can't put our own reason in conformity just by some program. We need other people. We need society. We are radically dependent social creatures. 
So we need that. And so we need a, a, a good society with families that are structured in the right way so that we can have consciences, right, that can stand up for injustice, right, and then respond to injustice, not in a radically hasty kind of way, right, which we see that around, mm. um, but in an also prudent way. So there could be a right to rebellion, for example, right, but only if the next regime, right, isn't worse than what we just had. Right. Right. It's, so we need the dictates of conscience, the dictates of justice, but we need those so that then we can use prudence in situations that we can never predict. Life gives us situations that we can't predict ahead of time, which is why we should train our conscience now to be correct. Because here's the here's the upshot. I think if your conscience is incorrect, if it's in error, right, and you're in a situation and it tells you don't do this or do this, and it's in error. Then according to Christian tradition, you still have to do what it says. But mm. Of course, you don't know what else it's saying in the moment, right? In the moment, you, your conscience is saying, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, because that's what its function is, right? So if you have an erroneous conscience that binds you, then no matter what you do, you're in the wrong. If you disobey your conscience, you're in the wrong. If you obey your conscience, you're following it erroneously because it's erroneous, Man. which says the, the premium is on the formation of our conscience on our constant sensitivity to reality, to truth, right? To other people, to, to sympathy, pity, make, taking joy in other people, these emotional, para-rational things you said, right? So I think that is the, the importance of a, of a true Christian society is absolutely crucial, not just to how society can get along and do well, but ultimately our sensitivity to God's voice in our own life, our own salvation. This is um, so important. I just, I, I, we need to spend so much more time on that. Absolutely. Really what, what's happening in a nutshell is you're saying that the formation of the conscience enabled by the family mm -hmm. and the church mm -hmm. exactly puts you in right order with your neighbor yes. and with God. Bingo. And so you, that you don't have to come to a place like no. Socrates or Hobbes no. who says that you need uh, a, a, not, it's not Coercive a mediator. Regime. You need you yeah. need somebody above you, a yeah. hegemon, yes. to give you law. Yes. Yeah. You need to be forced into it. You need to be forced As into it. As if the assumption is we couldn't have a society that trains us to not need to be forced so, into so, it. So in, uh, we I mean, don't need the, to be forced into it if we already have this dictates of justice and common decency. Man. So if so, the it's a not plug. a dog eat dog world. If you have a good society already in place, that's following principles of justice. Right. He just thinks that that we don't do that. So by because he thinks that fallen man just is man. His whole That's anthropology, really... yes, Hobbes, his whole anthropology is incorrect. Fallen man just is man, right? Right. He jumps the gun. He sees the evil, right, that man can perpetuate. I mean, you could read passages of Hobbes and then read passages of Augustine and say, yeah, they, they get humanity. They get the fallen human creature. But Hobbes doesn't get real humanity, right? The deep desires of us to love God and love neighbor and that we actually still have a desire to do that. Mm. He just thinks we don't. So really what, what the importance of conscience in Christian political philosophy is that enables us to live without a human sovereign taking the place of yeah. God. Yeah, we don't need this coercive force. Yeah. Well, I think that's a perfect place to leave. Yeah. That was so helpful. Thanks, Alex. Awesome. It was I enjoyed awesome. It. Yeah, I enjoyed it.